Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning and we consider its unfolding, help it to shape us, help it to guide us, help it to direct our paths, to lead us in the ways of righteousness for your namesake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In San Diego, there is a mountain that is kind of universally esteemed as the most beautiful place in which to view the city. Uh, actually, it's, it's one that has made national headlines before because there was a court case of over 25 years. I think it, I don't believe the Supreme Court had the rule on it, but it was a dedicated war memorial that has a massive cross at the top of it. And in a society which will allow for all kinds of images, all kinds of, of things to pervade our society, uh, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars were spent over 25 years to try to get this cross removed. But it's it's just this beautiful vista. The last time I took my family there when we visited, it took me like about 30 minutes to find a parking spot so that we could appreciate this view and just to take it all in. The, the former owner of the Chargers had the the house that was closest to this view. And, and Dr. Seuss kind of lived on the other side when I was growing up as a, as a kid there. Uh, and his door had cat in the hat on it, carved out. Anybody who moves there, they often want to live by this mountain. In our passage today, Moses is going to approach a mountain in a wilderness, barren area. Um, a very different kind of mountain, not one that necessarily in itself there is anything remarkable about it. And yet, as we see this passage unpack if through the eyes of faith, well, I think we'll see that there is something rather remarkable for this mountain. And so here we are in a text, and as we honed in on Last week, in the three verses we looked at, this week will be another three verses that we'll look at. We'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But last week, you saw in those final three verses of chapter 2, there had been 80 years of suffering. And now is a time of God's visitation. If you were to talk with someone who is of the Jewish faith, who had no idea about Christ, no idea uh, uh, the coming advent of our Lord that even we celebrate at Christmas, they would look at this event as the advent event of the Old Testament. And the three verses will be in today, as we've talked about a couple times in our series, this isn't God's backup plan. God had already told Abraham, as we've said, back in Genesis 15, that this season would come to pass, that there would be a period of profound suffering, two cycles of 40 years in a most miserable estate, devoid of much to hope in outwardly, as, as they would have looked and observed in the world. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 3 with Moses now 80 years old. The last time we checked in with Moses, he had become, at the age of 40, a shepherd. 
through seeing these seven daughters come to the well. And, and that would have been something that would have been kind of a cultural anomaly. It would have told us that, that Jethro has had no sons for him to, to allow his daughters to essentially do this kind of dangerous work would have said they have no son. And yet Moses comes in as the protector, comes in as the shepherd. And now we pick up four decades later, and Moses is still that shepherd. He is, he is now in this second season of his life that is very much is three acts of 40 years. He is a keeper of the flock. And the ancient shepherd jobs requirements were the following. First, there was a task to feed and to water the sheep. Then, second, there was the task to guide the sheep, to show them where to go. Third, to seek and save sheep who, whom get in trouble along the way. Fourth, to protect the sheep from threats that would devour them. Fifth, to make sure the sheep are kept separate from other kinds of livestock. And six, shepherds also needed to be able to endure long and lonely journeys in life's wilderness. And so when we kind of consider this period of 40 years, it's, it's no wonder that God would use someone who developed these skills into being an under-shepherd for him in the next 40 years. There is a reality to this job that is a refining kind of reality that lends itself to ministry. And that's why God so often will use the shepherd to help shepherd his people. Actually, the eldership sought out this week to figure out how long it's been since this congregation has had an eldership that's not just the pastoral role of the teaching pastor, but also other elders coming alongside from the congregation. You know how long it's been? It's been 50 years, 50 years, 10 years longer than Moses has been a shepherd in Midian. So let us be in prayer for that office. And Moses is putting the finishing touches on the second era of 40 years in his life, and he's learned how to be a disciplined leader, tough yet tender, firm yet compassionate, through being a watchman elder over the sheep. And Moses now finds himself emerging from the wilderness, coming upon Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is no, better known by its other name, Mount Sinai, the Old Testament uses those names fairly interchangeably. There's a very minor, insignificant um, debate on why the two names. The first, and I tend to think the most likely, is Horeb actually describes the mountain range. Actually, if you saw Bruce's video of this mountain range uh, in the Lenten series last year, um, you would have seen that for a long time he was driving along this mountain range, and Sinai is the actual place of visitation. Sinai is the actual place of meeting. Or the other option is, if I were to say to you, the city of brotherly love, what am I saying? Philadelphia. If I'm saying to say Philadelphia, I'm also saying Philadelphia. That's the other thing. So when you see this mountain, this is Mount Sinai, as you often know it. Mother names. 
And it's the type of land that people often avoid living by. It's the type of land whenever we had to kind of travel outside of Las Vegas, no, no matter which way we went, there would be mountains like this, desolate, barren mountains that if a shrine had been made there, uh, no one would really want to live there. And Moses wasn't praying. Moses wasn't fasting. Moses actually seems from the text to possibly have been even lying down resting. Some people actually wonder if this maybe even happened at night, almost like if, if God had come to him like a thief in the night. But the angel of the Lord visits in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And Moses looks and looks and looks at this fire. He expects this bramble bush will soon burn out. And God won't allow this small bush to be extinguished. The fire rages on, and yet the bush is not consumed. And there are a great variety of things for us to consider in God's advent, his, this unique advent in his coming, using an image, an illustration like this, at this moment in time. And before I, I really even get into the image, I want to start with this. I want us to take a big picture view of the ancient world at this time. I want us to, to kind of have the satellite view of the world or whatever China keeps flying over our airspace view of the world at this time. Every continent in the world, while not convenient in our day and age, had degrees of subjugation and slavery and evil and awful and ill will going on within those uh, continents, systems of oppression, as you call it. And, and it, it happened through a whole variety of skin colors, every skin color, every shade. And here at this Advent, God is coming for one group, for a, for a particular nation, for a particular people. There will be a later advent where God will come for a multitude, a grand multitude of ethnicities. And, and there are even aspects in this event where we can see a foretaste of that and, and occasionally seeing those who are not of the Hebrew line being engrafted in. And yet that is what God was doing here in this story. He was humming And the reality to pick on is this. The Darwinist idea of the survival of fittest has long been an operational world, long before some British man uttered the idea. The empirical evidence of the idea uh, can be seen again in histories, in the histories of the world. It takes a biblical worldview. It takes understanding this advent properly in order to establish the injustice of such a thing. People need to be truly created in the image of God and not just related to cattle through a series of evolution in order for them not to be able to be confined, for them to have this uh, image of God in them. So the suffering wasn't unique only to the Hebrew people in, the, in this moment in history, and yet God is still uniquely coming for them. God comes to save not all those who rescue in this moment, who are suffering, but he ultimately 
comes to rescue those who have relied upon him, his word, and his promises. And in last week's bulletin, I had a quote about how the old congregations in Europe, the Reformed churches, they used to talk about this verse, talk about this burning bush, and talk about the reality that in this image we have an illustration of the church, true church of God. As the true church of God struggles against heresy, struggles against evil, struggles against false teaching and false teachers, misunderstandings of grace, misunderstanding of what is good, what is truth, and a litany of other things, inward temptations of, of sin, external temptations, and external threats to the church. There is a reality that the entire history of the faithful followers of God throughout all of world history is that in one sense we should look and we should marvel and we should say, shouldn't these people have been consumed? Shouldn't their faith have been uh, subjugated to the dustbin of history, dustbin of history, and yet it is not. It preserves, it continues forward. And now has begun the hour of God's visitation, his advent in order to save them. Yet still, um, there has been great suffering in the flock. And the wolves of Pharaoh have been released upon these people for over 80 years, and yet they could not fully devour them, even though all of Egypt was aligned in one sense with Pharaoh. And yet there's something else also about the image of God presenting itself in a fire. The Bible is clear in places, such as Exodus, such as Isaiah 66, verse 15, and the New Testament places such as Romans 12, 19, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, that when God presents himself as a fire, it also represents God's vengeance on sin and evil. Here's how 2 Thessalonians verses, uh, verse 7b and 8 put it on how we should understand such imagery. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, he is inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, can I ask you a very important question as a Christian? How do you know what it looks like to spot God's vengeance? The New Testament tells us how to spot God's vengeance. A whole host of people here could tell us how to spot things. You know, Rose could take us outside and tell us how to spot all sorts of plant life. Zach could take us outside and tell us how to spot the moving patterns, the movement patterns of deer. Got three deer in like an hour this year on the property. Amazing. Guy's a great hunter. You could have Bruce Stocking taking the mine house and he could spot all these little things in the walls that would tell you of the history of the past here. You could have Karen Stocking take you out to the cemetery and she could tell you things about the cemetery stones and, and how they testify of some things about the lives of the individual. And yet, so many of us fail to appreciate on a day-in and day-out basis how we can spot the vengeance of God, how we can spot the judgment of God. 
even though this is not a mystery, this is not something the Bible hides. This is not something that the Bible is unclear about. Because the New Testament is clear, there are going to be moments where we will see God in fiery judgment in this world. And so I ask, do you know how to spot God's judgment in the world today? On those who reject his gospel and resist his offer for salvation. All you need to do is to open your Bible to Romans chapter 1 and read what God's fiery trial looks like in our own day. It's on page 1116 of your pew Bible. I'm going to read it. It's a lot of verses. Starting in verse 18 of that chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed. Notice, not will be revealed or has been revealed. It is revealed. It is presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and for birds and animals and creeping things. Ultimately, basically, if you don't worship the Creator, often you'll be found worshiping creation and nature itself. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of the, to their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those who are those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew no God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only them, but give approval to those who practice them. Hard words on how to spot God's fiery judgment in our world today. And yet this is how God describes in the New Testament how we will see when God comes like a fiery judgment upon societies and upon nations. 
And so with that as the definition, can you spot societies in which today God is making war on right now? In our own day? There might be a visual aid behind me to identify such a society. But, but even more than that, there's a rumor today there's a big game, and I guess it's not Owen's basketball game, but there's a big game. And while I'm not a prophet, I'm going to speak prophetically here. I'm sure even in the commercial, we will spot a serious heart problem in America and all sorts of corporations and, and, and pretty much almost every college university well they feel like the underdog they they collaborate together all these powerful forces the media even and they try to call what is evil good and what is good evil and let me say a few things about that first is this that's our story too we are all sinners who were saved from evil this is our story as well, maybe our variety of sin, how we got to the foot of the cross, how we came before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinful man, was different. Maybe our varieties of sin were different. This is still everybody's path. But we need to be respectful to see how God enacts his fiery vengeance in the world so that when we see people who are struggling with these sins, not so that we don't pursue them with gentleness and respect and love, but we know the heart of the situation is that God's judgment rests upon them, and they need the freedom. They need to know the God whom is, can be a cleansing fire in their life, who can remove the impurities of their life, because we know that about our own lives, that God continues to be patient with us, that he does not um, devour us in his judgments. But we need to seize upon that opportunity. We all are a living testimony of, the, of forgiveness being true. And so that's why we need to be a part of God's great commission. That's why we need to be a part of sharing the good news with others. You know, there's this amazing reality of what's going to happen here that we often don't appreciate, but like John the Baptist would have understood this about this passage. In one sense, Moses is first sent out like a general, like a great commander, a warrior, and he is going to subject the nation that is keeping his people in bondage. And later on, he will essentially uh, give them a command, give them a word from God in which to live by and to, to base their life on. And, and there are aspects of that which are still true of the second advent of Christ, the coming of Christ at Christmas. And yet, there's this moment in the Gospels when John the Baptist sits in prison, sits in prison, he's wondering, you know, why, Lord, why, why aren't you coming in and destroying the Romans? Why aren't you 
I thought you were supposed to be greater than Moses. Why aren't you going to make war? And, and what John didn't capture is that this cleansing fire in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the holiness of God, he first came in order to purify us from sin, and now he actively comes today in judgment of those who still refuse him in the ways we've read about in Romans 1. And so what I'm saying here is we often convince ourselves our society is in gross decline because we left God. And yet the New Testament would actually give us a little bit of nuance in that. It would actually say our society reflects the, the fact that God's vengeance, God's judgment is upon us today. And what should we do with that sobering reality as we consider it? We should consider what Moses states in verse 3 as he looks upon this miraculous sight of our Lord's appearing. He says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. What does that even mean? I will turn aside to see this great sight. Here is Moses, an 80-year-old man, whom at this point, life seems like it's been quite a failure for him in one sense. He once tried to save a people who run to his own over the course of two days, and they rejected him, and he fled. And now greeted with a fire that should be able to destroy him, destroyed Moses in his presence. It had full capability to do it. This fire had no desire to destroy him. Rather, this life, this fire had a desire for him to turn and to change his life. Have you met that fire? Do you look at that fire with reverence and awe? Does it change the course of your path and the ways of your life? We always need to be assessing our lives and asking ourselves, how respectful of that cleansing fire are we being? Moses sees this fire, respects the fire, and turns to walk towards it. He doesn't know the fullness of what turning and walking towards this fire will ultimately cost him. In some ways, it will cost him everything, and yet in so turning... It will give him far more than he could ever think or imagine. And so, and so he is compelled to walk towards it either way. And yet, as we read in Romans 1, what are most people compelled to do when they see the fire? Oh, I, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I, I don't want to go towards a God like that. I'd rather turn around. I'd rather... I'd rather go another way. I'd rather, I'd rather go find something in creation to worship rather than a creator like that. I'd rather live in utter rebellion to his design and how he says, this will be more fruitful for you. This will be better for you. This will be better for your societies. This will be better for your people. This will be good for you. Trust my ways. Lean not on your own understanding. And they say willfully, and we say when we participate in sin, no, not today, Lord. Not today. I'd rather turning than turning towards you. I'd rather turn away from you. That's not what Moses will do here. What is the meaning behind having the fire of God's cleansing spirit within you? In one sense, it's the great joy of Pentecost. For at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended in one sense like fire 
to dwell within the Lord's people. And you actually consider what's in this burning bush here. We see a consuming fire that does not devour the one in whom it resides. A fire that will not devour your life and your life, but a fire that will burn for the rest of this mortal life. In one sense, this is an illustration of that greater Pentecost. You know, so many Christian denominations get this wrong, but when God sets his Holy Spirit upon us when, and, and allows his spirit to be within us, it's not to utterly uh, to allow us to be kind of this paranoid individual that believes we can lose our, our salvation at any moment in time, but actually that we know God is there. And God will not destroy, but rather refine that which is in us so that we better reflect his image. Grace, the grace we receive is planted by God within our heart. And that grace in its life has much evil that desires to contend with it. It desires to to injure that faith and to remove that grace and, and rage against it, both internally with temptations, but also externally. And while the nations rage and they'll do things in order to try to sift our faith, to, to remove our faith, to sift it like wheat, we know this. While it might seem at times we can lose our faith at any moment or we've uh, unfortunately committed sin that we feel like we cannot be forgiven for, God's abiding love for us, his love within us, is so that the fires of hell cannot overwhelm us. See, this grace of God has been planted within us for a purpose. And when we remember the fire that can burn and yet not consume, it is a hopeful way to move forward. See, God wants the roots of the grace that he's given us, to those roots to grow deep within us so that we know it's an unshakable faith that we have. And he wants our branches to extend far and wide so that in one sense it might give us a sense of the protection and the shade and the comfort he gives and he desires to see fruit through the grace that he has given and the measure of grace, because that fruit is good and pleasing in his sight. And so what I'm saying, Christian, is this. Yes, you and I are small individuals in a raging world, and yet a most holy God, who long ago should have consumed us by his wrath, that God once rose in a garden in order that he now contend to his plants and waters them with his provision so that we can continue to grow and mature in the midst of the fires of judgment poured out in the world. So have you turned aside from your former ways because you had a vision of the God who has come for you, Christian? In the three verses we have looked at this morning in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see Moses being changed. He's being changed beginning with the power of God's presence. And he's being changed upon a desolate mountain in this unique advent of the Old Testament scriptures before a burning bush. 
I read something this week I had never considered about this passage. It was from an early church theologian, Clement of Alexandria. And he considered first the burning bush. Okay, we're in a wilderness. What type of bush would that have been? Would it have been, you know, a a soft, fluffy, like eucalyptus-style bush? Comfy? You could almost pull off a bunch of the things and make it a pillow? No, it would have been a thorny bush. It would have been a bramble bush. It would have been a bush that, if you could put it on your forehead, like a crown, it would have cut into you. And in the first advent of God, he comes as a raging fire that will not be consumed and not consume this bush, this bramble bush of thorns. And in the second advent of God, he comes as a person. Comes as a person. And in his final moments, as the fiery judgment of God is poured out upon him on the cross, he wears a crown of thorns. And in that crown of thorns, it resembles the truth of the first advent that was ever to come for the people of Israel. And yet they were blind to see it. That although the fires of judgment rage, the one who held the crown of thorns upon his head would not be consumed by it. That he allowed himself to experience and to have the judgment fall upon him for those who believe upon him. And yet, if you will not believe upon him, if you will not forsake your sin, if you turn to that image, of him upon that most desolate of all desolate mountains, upon a cross, and you say, I don't really care about that cross. I don't really care about that Savior. I want nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with his laws. And you turn away and you walk the other way. His judgment will be upon you. His judgment will be upon you. His fiery judgment was placed on his son. He allowed his son to be the fiery bush of all bushes in one sense, to experience the judgment so you wouldn't have to. And yet goats will continue to be goats. And we don't warn and we don't tell and we don't share. But we need to warn and tell and share. Because... Our God is like a consuming fire, and yet for those found in him, he will not consume us into judgment. And so we need to love those around us in gentleness and respect, but we need to have the courage to behold the bramble bush on fire upon the mountain that sets us free from the sins of the world. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, every week we come before your presence. And there is all sorts of wickedness in our heart. 
continue to turn us, to sanctify us, to have us turn towards you, to forsake the things in the world. And let us tenderly come besides those who do not yet know you. Give us opportunities. Give every one of us the courage and opportunity to to even share the gospel with one individual this week, Lord. Pray that you would answer that prayer. Let us go out into the world sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whom went up the mountain, the least desirable mountain of all, and was afflicted so that we might be forgiven, so that we might share that good news with others. In his name we pray. Amen. Now let us take a quiet moment to confess our sins before the Lord.